Welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, the joint podcast presented by Railway Age Railway Track and Structures and International Railway Journal, and now Simmons Boardman's Marine publication, Marine Log. And this is the first joint podcast between Marine Log and Railway Age. I'm a Railway Age editor in chief, William C. Vantuono, and very happy to have the editor in chief of Marine Log, Heather Irvin. Heather? Welcome. Yes, thank you, Bill. I'm very happy to be here. So joining us today are Bill Shea, who is the chairman of Bloom Global. He is also chief executive officer of Direct Chassis Link, or DCLI, and uh, an investor in the company since March 2012. Bill's been instrumental in shaping the strategic vision of DCLI and facilitating the acquisition of major legacy chassis fleets while maintaining oversight of the company's growth and financial performance. Pervinder Yohar is Chief Executive Officer of Bloom Global. Pervinder joined the company uh, with a very deep and very diverse background in supply chain management and technology. He's led top software companies, providing solutions to the global supply chain industry, as well as managed global supply chain systems for companies such as Hewlett Packard. Uh, He's leveraging his expertise in artificial intelligence, robotics, process automation, machine learning, and blockchain. And he's guiding Bloom's next wave of transformative solutions for the supply chain marketplace. So welcome to, uh, to both of you. Uh, Bill, let's, uh, let's get started with you. Uh, please uh, tell me about your background working with the railroad industry and, uh, and just how Bloom came to be. Great. Uh, thank you, Heather. Thank you, Bill. Um, after uh, graduating from University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, I went to work for IBM. And after about three years, I decided to go into transportation leasing, uh, leasing railroad cars to short line railroads and class one railroads. And I remember my mother telling me at the time, you're leaving the number one computer company in the world to go sell, sell choo-choo trains to, to railroads. What kind of idiot did I, did I raise? I have to say it was probably the, the best decision uh, I ever made. I started my own company in 1983. Uh, it was called Kelly Transportation, and we partnered with a, a trailer manufacturer called Stoughton Trailers. We manufactured piggyback trailers uh, and ultimately domestic containers and chassis for railroads and trucking companies. Um, we branched out and formed an operating leasing company called Bay Cities Leasing in, in 1987, and we really helped develop what is known now as the EMP, UMAX programs, uh, for the Class 1 railroads. Um, uh, we were asked to manage the, uh, the program for the railroads. We also brought in a company that Provender will talk about later called Res1, right? Uh, which we helped develop a booking reservation billing system uh, to manage the uh, 53-foot domestic container fleet uh, for the U.S. railroads. Um, and about that time, I finished selling my company at General Electric and, and uh, had gone on public boards like Track, which uh, uh, is a major competitor now, J.B. Hunt, um, you know, obviously one of the largest truckers in the country. Uh, but uh, I think my wife uh, said at best when she said, I, I married you for breakfast and, and dinner, not for lunch. Go out and do something. So at that point in time, I, I uh, co-invested with a, a leasing company, a, a private equity company called uh, Little John uh, to uh, acquire uh, DCLI, which was a carve out from Maersk Line. Uh, it was Maersk's domestic, uh, their marine chassis uh, operating company. Um, since 2012, 
you know, we've grown the company substantially from 64,000 chassis uh, to now 250,000. Uh, we're the only chassis leasing company that's split between both domestic, uh, where we have 100,000 uh, chassis, and, and marine, where we have 150,000 chassis. And we service five of the top nine uh, ocean carriers, as well as uh, we supply exclusively chassis for uh, CSX, et cetera. Um, make a last statement. Um, you know, we really began looking at how to improve our platform and get into the domestic market. Uh, we, we felt that the best way to do this was linking our asset provisioning model you know, with our customer supply chain networks. So at that point in time, we went out and acquired uh, two different companies, um, Res1 and a company called IAS, which is a logistics execution company. And we, we at that point, realized that we needed to bring in a top supply chain uh, executive to, to run the company. And we're very fortunate to find Pravinder Johar in, in 2018. He has literally transformed the company from an asset management company to a, an operating platform really focused on, on, on digital orchestration and the, and the logistics supply chain. Thank you, Bill. Uh, so, Pravinder, uh, you've had a long history in supply chain related uh, IT leadership roles. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, companies like Hewlett Packard. So, how have you been using your experience uh, in your role at uh, Bloom? Thank you, Bill. If you look at my background, it's been um, uh, over 20 years of working on logistics and supply chain related transformations. Early on, a uh, lot of my focus was on um, a truckload and LTL industry. So, so if you go back 20 years, I kind of were working with, uh, I think, eight of the 10 largest trucking companies in the US, LTL companies in the US, that how do you go optimize how a trucking company operates. Right? So how do you assign a driver? How do you look at trailers? How do you do go load to load? Uh, those were my early days. And then, then worked with them, uh, many of the large retailers and CPG companies uh, when I was at Manhattan in transforming kind of when, uh, when uh, uh, the multi-channel dot-com era uh, was there kind of in, in, in 2000s or so. And as you mentioned, uh, went to Hewlett Packard kind of in late uh, 2008 to go and help transform uh, their supply chain. And in that role, we, we were in um, every country in the world, so 160 some countries. My role was global in nature, kind of across all type of products. Uh, so so uh, I think company at that time had 126 billion in revenue. Uh, and then you can imagine kind of every aspect of supply chain kind of um, you know, was, was just uh, large and global uh, in scale. So I was fortunate enough to work on kind of many, many uh, logistics transformations, not only in US, but also when we uh, set up kind of the China, uh, middle of China, the rail that now goes from Chongqing, which is where we set up some of the factories all the way to Europe, which helped actually uh, reduce some of the traffic and days of inventory of what goes on to ocean kind of at that time. Uh, also was involved in kind of the high-speed rail kind of project that we did between Chongqing to Hong Kong or Shenzhen area uh, because that was necessary. Uh, in 2011-12, we worked with Port of Piraeus in Greece uh, kind of as an alternative uh, to Rotterdam, uh, which was also an interesting kind of a project bill and Heather right? because uh, it was not only that how do we get the port to develop, kind of the Port of Piraeus, which we did with kind of one of the large ocean liners, and uh, together, but also how do you do rail connections 
kind of from that port to the port to all of Europe. And even if you get kind of stuff coming in kind of by that port for a company like ours, you needed those containers to go back. So how do you go develop a network between multiple large kind of PCOs or shippers so that that, that network can, can work? Uh, so, so in my career, kind of, it's been a lot of experience on how do you bring different parties together to make logistics and supply chain supply chain work. I've been a CEO of a few companies uh, since. I mean, one uh, uh, was focused on supply chain planning space. Another one uh, was an artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, company too. Uh, and I think it took a long discussion before I got back into logistics in 2018. I think Bill Shea will tell you that it was about a year, kind of close to a year, seven, eight months of, of figuring out whether we do this or not, kind of as a Bloom Global. But the opportunity we saw is that kind of uh, one, uh, global supply chain by definition is intermodal. It's more than one mode of transportation involved. Right? So you have an origin country, destination country, and either ocean or air. And Bloom Global supports both of those modes, right? which are connecting those countries if they're not connected by land. Right? So, so in Europe and in North America, there's a lot of, lot of US, Canada, Mexico are connected by land. But if you think of otherwise, those are the pieces. Each one of the origin country can have multiple modes in themselves. Right? So whether you think of it, uh, for U.S. imports on origin uh, or U.S. exports at origin, it can be a combination of rail and truck uh, or parcel and truck, depending on if it's a air cargo or ocean cargo uh, too. Same thing happens on the other side. Uh, so, so this ecosystem is, has been very fragmented and then to some extent behind kind of many of the other the other transportation areas which exist. Right? So the reason I mentioned that 20 years back is when we were solving these problems for truckload companies and LTL companies, right? and then not all of those innovations had made it into kind of rail and ocean industry. So for Bloom, what we have been focused on is truly building an ecosystem and Bloom stands for blooming, growing organic ecosystem. Uh, so when we named it in 2018, it stood for that kind of no one company, uh, it's not an island. You cannot work kind of just with one company. You need a neutral party, third, a neutral third party, which is uh, what we are, which can connect all type of companies together. And our, our focus is on all modes of transportation. Uh, rail is a big part of our, uh, our legacy out of Regman. Uh, but so are the other modes and how do we interconnect those modes is what, what the focus has been at Bloom. So I think to answer your question, kind of all of my experiences of now working for more than 30 years have led me to kind of what, what we are doing to apply uh, all of those uh, to, to Bloom Global to build this digital, digital platform. This question is for you, Pravender. Can you tell us a little more about how your solutions have been integrated by ocean carriers? I know you mentioned ocean liners earlier. Uh, what results have they seen? I think if I look at ocean liners, you know, several of them are our customers. I won't name them too, but the one area that we have focused on is how do you do first mile and last mile execution and visibility at a granular level. Right? So, so for some of our ocean carriers customers, right? So any motor carrier that they may be using on 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 the truck side all the transportation execution happens on our platform, right? So think of it that it's a one connection to the ocean carrier. Uh, in US, there are um, 
we are connected to over 5,000 Ray companies. So all of the execution of how the work orders are dispatched, how do they go, uh, those drivers use our mobile app. So we have kind of we keep track of where the container is at any given point in time, including the proof of delivery capability. So that's one aspect, Heather, is how ocean carriers use us. So second area, which is equally important, that we have uh, this program of being able to reposition marine containers right, for domestic use. So our ocean carrier customers actually use the same platform that we have had for the rail, uh, rail intermodal for 53 feet container where they can publish kind of those containers and we help them move kind of from one, one location to another using rail, rail as a mode. So, so some of the ocean carriers use, use that capability you know, from us. Then there are kind of all other aspects of asset management, kind of knowing how do I make appointments at terminals, uh, looking at kind of um, what the chassis availability are uh, to, uh, for, for both the domestic and the, and the marine chassis. Uh, that we do fair amount of work kind of in, in that space because you have to keep track of uh, uh, those assets as well. Uh, and, uh, and there are many more, right? So one of the things we have is um, have a customer advisory board, uh, which has both ocean liners and large US railroads on it. And we've been working on it for the last three years at how do we help collaborate between kind of what, what we do with our marine customers or ocean carriers and what we do with railroads. And as you know, Kind of some of it is common, right? so some of it is kind of a little bit different, but but the but the needs are needs are similar. Uh, so there's a fair amount of work that we have been doing. That how can we get our two customer segments to work closely together and look at new optimization opportunities? And there are plenty of those, Heather. Phil, what do you feel is the most immediate challenge to the intermodal industry today? I reflect back on 2020, and I, I use the phrase it was like a Charles Dickens novel right, uh, a tale of two cities. Uh, uh, second quarter, we saw a, a retraction um, in volumes, uh, both uh, domestic and, and uh, international domestic dropped, you know, uh, a small amount, but international dropped by well over 20%. Um, as we moved in through second quarter into third quarter, um, obviously, people couldn't spend money in the service sector, restaurant, hospitality, businesses, etc. The stimulus package in, in, in Q2, Q3 of last year uh, really drove a rise in consumer durable demands. And, and that uh, increased the, the volumes by more than 50% in, in the second half of the year uh, on the marine side of the business over, over second quarter lows. Um, so what we Im immediately did was we changed our operating practices, right? And we pulled units from storage. We repaired every, both uh, marine and, and domestic uh, chassis by working overtime and weekends. Uh, uh, and we've continued to work every weekend since July of 2020 to support the, uh, the business volumes. The entire supply chain became stressed. And, and we saw congestion and capacity issues at ports, at railroads, at warehousing, um, you know, and also with the equipment, uh, because uh, I'll talk about it in a second, the, the, uh, the dwell time or the time that it took to, to complete a cycle of a, of a container on the street increased dramatically. Uh, we also saw, especially on the West Coast, productivity issues, um, you know, in labor uh, at, at ports and really driven by labor shortages, um, you know, and, uh, 
that also we've now seen uh, just a buildup of ships from LA all the way up to Seattle uh, on the West Coast. And, th and this has really kind of uh, has created tremendous congestion uh, and throughout the entire supply chain. Um, warehouse labor shortages uh, and driver shortages have increased 12 times by more than 50 to 70% in certain markets. So uh, one, one last thing on the domestic side, and I'll kind of talk uh, specifically about where I think we need to go. On the domestic side of the house, you know, we're seeing um, because of the rise of e-commerce um, and, and uh, parcel, uh, a major uh, increase in uh, purchasing of 53-foot uh, domestic containers, which will begin to land uh, in Q2 um, uh, to support the, the e-commerce and parcel market. 15,000 new boxes, right, which is uh, approximately 6% of the current fleet, including Debbie Hunt. This 15,000, excluding Debbie Hunt, additions, which are going to be over 6,500, are going to come to the market, and that's going to cause continued stress on chassis that we think will extend through the last of uh, the, the remainder of the year. And then, uh, lastly, rail cars. Uh, there are rail car shortages plus dislocations in rail cars, uh, which are driving driving some issues. So, now how are we going to address these uh, the, these issues on on capacity? First thing we need to do is do a better job forecasting of of the uh, demand. Uh, and on a regional basis for both our marine and, and domestic business. We historically uh, worked with our ocean carrier rail customers and PCOs on a three-week basis. We're now looking to, to focus in on, on weekly updates on demand um, because ships are, uh, are, are relocating from one port to another at the last minute, et cetera. Second, you know, we need to address this dwell time. Um, you can't, there's a phrase you can't build uh, you know, equipment fleets for Easter Sunday. But, but when dwell times increase, in the, uh, it, it really taxes uh, our ability to serve our customers. Uh, in LA, for example, the, the uh, dwell time in, has increased by more than, more than 100%. It went from three and a half to four days to seven to eight days. And that means that we need twice as many assets Right, to support that, uh, that business. And, and obviously, economically, you can't go out and just uh, require assets to support a, a short-term issue. Yeah. One of the last things that we're doing is we're working on a long-term basis to help our, uh, both our, our ocean carrier customers, but also our, our, uh, our domestic customers, help redesign uh, their inland supply chain networks. Um, at one point in March, we had over 6,000 marine containers uh, that, were, uh, that were grounded in markets. Um, and uh, a lot of that had to do with the, the terrible storms that we had in the early part of the year, as well as just the overall sheer volumes uh, that uh, we saw in terms of increase. And I haven't seen anything like it in my 40 years in, in history. Long term, we have to change the way um, that freight has moved. We've got to focus in on dual transactions. When I was on Debbie Hunt's board, the first thing we looked at every, every board meeting was, what's the percentage of loaded miles? Really um, have a, a strong load-to-load -load network in the U.S. intermodal market, either on the domestic or the marine side, and, and that's got to change. Um, on a positive note, uh, DCLI, uh, we've invested over $2 billion 
to improve our, ass, uh, our, our, our chassis fleets over the, over the last few years, both through acquisition, uh, as well as major investments in uh, new, new chassis, refurbing older chassis, and uh, I helped convert the rail industry to radial tires 20 years ago, and, and uh, I'm fully committed to that. Uh, DC Live's 250,000 chassis will be oper operating on radial tires uh, by the end of uh, 2023, uh, and, uh, and that's an initiative that, that we've uh, helped to drive. So um, what, we're, what we're dealing with, Bill, is congestion. We're dealing with capacity issues, and it's hitting every segment of the market. Uh, and, um, and so in, uh, it's, right now, it's a lot of blocking and tackling and, and, and trying to move assets uh, into the right place at the right time. Are the labor uh, shortages related to COVID, just people not being available because they were sick certainly, or quarantining or whatever? That's a great question. Two things. Uh, certainly at the Port of LA and Long Beach, one third of their uh, ILWU, IAM workforce, right, was, uh, w w uh, had ended up getting COVID. And that effect affected the productivity of the ports dramatically um, you know, starting in the uh, second, third quarter of last year. Uh, the second thing is that there's a shortage of warehouse labor and there's a shortage of motor carrier uh, drivers. And, and that's really driven by the fact that the stimulus package and the extended unemployment benefits um, make it, let, you know, maybe not as attractive to go back uh, to back to work. Um, Biden's uh, 1.9 trillion or two, I guess it's 1.9 trillion package, 25% of the jobs that are part of this last stimulus package are related to uh, getting more truck drivers on the street. That will ease um, the congestion issues that we're seeing in both in the marine and domestic intermodal segments. Yeah, Bill, uh, you mentioned inland earlier. Are you seeing some of these same issues inland, you know, as far as um, the intermodal ports, say on the Ohio River, the Mississippi, are you seeing some of these same issues we see on the coasts? Uh, Heather, it is, uh, that's ground zero right now. If, exactly. you know, if you look at, um, if you look at the, uh, again, we're, we're the only leasing company in both the domestic and 53 foot and, and marine segments. On, on the marine side, um, the major hotspots right now are Chicago, um, Memphis, Kansas City, Nashville, Cleveland, Columbus, right? And much of that is uh, due to the heavy marine volumes uh, and uh, for consumer durable goods into those, those segments. Um, in the domestic uh, side of the house, we've, we've had issues in um, some of the Gulf markets like, like Dallas. We've had issues in even small markets like Minneapolis and Chicago. So yeah, it's, it, it, it very much is centered, um, you know, in that central U.S. corridor. New York, New Jersey's tight, um, and, uh, and certainly uh, L.A. Has, uh, has had its issues as well. So we've really had a perfect storm here between uh, COVID and uh, weather disruptions, uh, all kinds of supply chain uh, disruptions. Uh, so Pravinder, uh, how can intermodal stakeholders prepare themselves for future logistics disruptions? Because they're not going to end, obviously. Yeah, yeah. They might get better, but they're not going to end. Part of the focus has been on the only 
thing that that's going to be constant is these disruptions. We used to see major disruptions about once a year. Right? If I look at last 10 years or so, uh, Bill, right? So like in early 2010-11, we had this volcano that uh, happened in Europe, right? which means that none of the air cargo could fly uh, to. And then uh, if you remember that uh, Japan had an uh, earthquake, which almost kind of became that there is going to be a, a kind of uh, issues with the nuclear plants there. So that was another big disruption. Then there was kind of Thailand got flooded one of the years when we were on the high tech site, which means that you couldn't get storage. Then there was a year when there was a major factory that caught fire. But what we have seen in the last year or two, that those disruptions which used to happen once in a while and you had to do scenario planning, contingency planning, how do I do business continuity? Now they happen almost every month or so. So one of the things we've been working on with our car customers and this notion, and we announced it kind of a couple of uh, weeks back, something called a bloom map, where the first thing which was missing is that if you are going to look at disruptions, you first have to model, and we call it a digital twin of your supply chain or digital twin of your loads, even from the intermodal side, where how do you know like I will give you an example, which we are publishing kind of our platform, getting interline schedules is not that straightforward, depending on kind of how many lines we are talking about. Right. So what we talk about on map and digital twin is that how do you know where are all the ramps, where are all the junctions, what are the schedules when it is kind of more than one railroad, what happens when you do a rubber tire move in Chicago and how do I go anticipate for it? So our first piece of getting prepared is that first know and model kind of what your supply chain network and logistics network looks like. Then we focus on that. How do you predict? How long does it take you to get from point A to point B? And when a disruption happens, how do you quickly remodel? Right? And then we call it simulation planning or resiliency side that what would be the impact? I'll give you one example, right? So the weather that happened in Texas, the impact of that weather, and it's not rail related, but it is related to some intermodal. It actually had an impact on parcel shipments, which were going from Boston to Florida. You wouldn't think of that kind of something that's going on in Texas, right? So if you, if you just look at it at a high level, would really impact it, but kind of the parcel carriers and they use kind of rail intermodal and other components and where the terminals are. But the reality is that the, you have to model that how do goods flow? From point A to point B, and some of these things have unintended uh, consequences. So, so our focus has been that to do that, you need a digital platform because no, uh, no human can possibly keep all of this on track. Uh, to you have to be able to model it, and then you have to be able to say that how quickly can I react, and then when when these things happen, and am I ready to go go to my contingency plans, and then the technologies like uh, AI and machine learnings are now helping where you can simulate kind of not only on the basis of the fixed areas, but also what we call cognitive science, right? That how do I go predict what could possibly, possibly happen? Uh, so there's a lot kind of to go do, go do on that side, but it all starts off with first having kind of a map of the world, which is what kind of Bloom is focused on. And for our customers, their specific map to know what will be the disruption. And as I mentioned before, these things are interrelated. You can't just have a map for one railroad if you're going to have interline schedules, you need the map which shows all the railroads together and how do they work. You can't have just for rail, you have to have with the ocean that what's going on with the port of LA and Long Beach. So by the time you connect it, you're back to kind of this digital twin of the world concept 
that we are focused on. And then pre-COVID and before all of these disruptions, even though we were working on it in 18 and 19, uh, it didn't really get as much traction as it did in the last year or so. Uh, that, that it has been that you have to be able to get, get this modeling then correct and do the simulation when these things happen. Well, there are a lot of things that have to have to work together uh, yeah. for uh, obviously for chassis pools or chassis management. Uh, it's 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 a it's a nationwide network. It's the same thing for for rail intermodal platforms, which are for the most part it's uh, it's a pool uh, pool fleet uh, owned and managed by TTX uh, and shared among all the railroads. So. Would that explain why, if there's a huge weather-related disruption in, in Texas, how that could uh, uh, affect uh, movements and from Boston to Atlanta? Because why? Because the equipment is not where it needs to be? Was that that sound, might sound simple, but is that, is that how that works? That's one of the reasons. But the other one also is that what, is, what are these hub and spoke models and what happens when you start getting backed up kind of in Texas, right? Uh, so it's, it's more of that kind of... Uh, uh, the uh, if you think of where uh, the parcel distribution hubs are, right? If I stay with that example, right? You can get impacted even though you don't. You might not think that it's getting impacted, but equipment is a big part of another issue that you brought up, right? So if you look at the shortage of marine containers today, what's going on with the U.S. exporters? That uh, another explanation is that kind of all the things we did on import actually had an impact on export and Heather, you probably kind of saw that on the marine side of it, uh, but that's been a big, big area of focus for us at, at, at Bloom, also for kind of uh, organizations like ECTC, uh, that kind of how do you go, go look at this correlation bill, right? If you think of it, the correlation might not be that obvious, right? that the equipment shortage at one point will have an impact somewhere else, but it actually eventually shows up as an impact. Uh, Pravender, going back to you, um, can you tell us more about how your solution seamlessly can transition its data from ocean carrier or, you know, whatever marine vessel is in question to rail for companies who utilize both during one transit? Yeah. yeah. And I think, uh, so, so, uh, to think of it that for us, that is a seamless transition that needs to happen. Could we look at a transition from kind of, if you're a U.S. exporter, how do you start off in Iowa and you end up in Thailand? And kind of in there. So you have so many of these links. And on average, it's actually not only two companies that like you're talking about a railroad and even railroad is not one company, but there are multiple lines involved kind of just on the rail side and an ocean carrier. There are on average 14 of these companies involved. And how do you transfer that data seamlessly for, for, for that end-to-end -end shipment? Right. So, so on our platform, if you are a shipper, you can actually see all of those legs. And we predict kind of how those legs happen. How do you transfer data from one to the other? How do you do handoffs kind of on an ongoing, uh, ongoing basis? And, uh, and, and if I give you one example, there's something like um, uh, ERD information, right? So, so there's a big impact on it that you're talking about a U.S. exporter who has to start moving a container right? on the basis of knowing when the vessel is going to leave from LA Long Beach and there's a rail kind of involved in it, right? So, so, so how do you go calculate all of those dates and coordinate it that you don't leave too early and you don't leave too late, right? So, so which requires coordination kind of even for future information, not only kind of how do I pass information on a container uh, from, from one to the other. What are some of the uh, 
more significant changes you've seen in the intermodal space over uh, your your career up uh, up until now? Well, I, I think uh, I was fortunate enough to be involved in help creating the EMP program uh, and UMAX program, and that's still in existence 28 years later. Um, we were able to utilize that EMP program structure um, to convince two competitors that track and flexi to work together in LA uh, to create a concept called pool of pools. Uh, this was the structure I put together back in 1994, where it's a tri-party agreement between the three large lessors that um, uses a debit credit model cross-party charges between the three leasing companies. And it makes a fully interoperable pool in LA and and, and trunk the number of, of pools, chassis pools from 23 to two uh, in 2015. Um, you know, the, the thing I'm most excited about is working with Provender and, and, um, and looking at how to manage assets better through a dynamic platform. Um, historically, when you ran pools, you did two things. You, you basically repaired the assets and you move them from point A to point B to meet demand. Uh, but there's very little forecasting that was done. There's very little street interchanging of the assets. There was no tying of the, of the chassis uh, or, or equipment assets to the supply chains of the ocean carriers, the railroads and, and the, uh, the BCOs. And, and that's something that Preventer and I uh, have been working on for a number of years. Asset owners look for asset utilization to be higher, but it can be higher only if it is being used for the supply chain. And because at the end of the day, kind of these two things are kind of go together. And typically the supply chain software companies, supply chain solutions have worked where they have not accounted for the needs for the asset owners. And asset owners have been kind of working in a siloed where they're looking at asset utilization without realizing kind of what is going on with the supply chains around. So our focus has been on that. How do you bring these two things together? Right. Uh, so our operating platform, which is what we call it on Bloom, it's not only for supply chain optimization, right? which typically deals with getting the right product at the right time, at the right place. Right. So, so which is what kind of if you care of this term called perfect order. Perfect order is that your stuff is there at the right time, right place, right time and everything else revolves around it, right? So how do I forecast demand? How do I supply? How do I manufacture? And how do I use logistics or logistics related assets? So what we've been doing is that account for that kind of in that whole ecosystem optimization and it benefits the asset owners, right? Because now it is more closely tied to the supply chain. It's, uh, it, it helps the supply chains of the world because they have the assets now available Again, kind of the right name, right place, which is what kind of where the asset needs to be. And that's been the kind of the new, uh, new focus for Bloom Global on, on, on the digital platform side, that how do you bring these two things together? We, we've, looked at, uh, we've looked at the sort of the black hole areas, right? And traditionally for us, uh, on the marine side, the black hole has been the marine terminal and getting good data from the marine terminal. Uh, and Provinders worked a, uh, he's got a new product offering out to terminal operators to support some initiatives that they've got for premium products, VIP services, et cetera. But it really also is focused on getting more accurate data that can be passed through to equipment owners uh, to, to better forecast uh, 
you know, supply, demand, and availability. Pravinder, could you speak a little more about that marine terminal solution that Bill just mentioned? Our focus on marine terminals is building the ecosystem around the terminal, first and foremost, right? So if you think of the, and it's not only for marine terminals, Heather, the same thing applies at a rail ramp, right? So, so when we look at it, for us, it is kind of that it might be domestic, a rail ramp, or it might be a marine terminal. In both cases, you need the ability to get in and out, which means that how do you make appointments, right? How do you know when your container is going to be available for a pickup? How do I go drop off an empty kind of uh, container if I need to, along with the chassis uh, on, on that side uh, too? And then uh, and the notion, which was not there, so all of those are kind of what comes to mind, kind of uh, just the first set of things to do. But the next evolution on it is that marine containers kind of can be optimized to meet the needs of the shippers or the BCOs. So the product we offered, I think we launched it about a month back uh, or maybe two months back now, kind of with, with one of the terminals in LA, is that how you can offer VIP services to your customers. Those VIP services can be as simple as kind of that you will give them push appointments versus pulling for appointments, right? So instead of a motor carrier or the shipper always looking for an appointment, can you push the appointments to kind of the customer base? And of course, there may be some rem revenue associated with that for the for the marine uh, operator, uh, terminal operator. Uh, but that's one. It could be that can you get my container prepared? Or if you're going to be in the area, can you prioritize my container over others? Right? And there are different levels of services. All of them are available on Bloom platform. So there's a tariff. Because uh, uh, as you think of it, when you offer this services, you also have to figure out how do I bill for them? How do I collect it? How do I kind of make it? And you cannot do it for every container. Right? If the container is going to be in the middle of the ship at the bottom kind of of that, it's not coming out on day one versus the container which is on the top. So you need the information exchange, which is what Bill was talking about on, uh, to know that what's where and for which containers, what type of VIP service can be available. And then if you're a shipper, how do you acquire that VIP service, right? which is what happens to Bloom platform, to our product in there? And how do we seamlessly integrate it? Because if you look at kind of just in US, Canada, Mexico, there are somewhere around what 80, mid 80s terminals, right? So if I'm a shipper, for me to go and figure out which terminal can offer what VIP service can become a nightmare, you eventually give up, right? Versus a platform like Bloom, connecting to all of them, offering that product to every terminal who wants to go do it. And of course, the early customers have kind of uh, time to market advantage for us. Right? So, so, so the terminals which are doing it with us already have this up and running uh, too. But we do see the world going where kind of uh, not all containers are created equal. Uh, so there can be differentiated pricing and there's a different level of service that you can get out of the marine terminals. You know, which can benefit kind of all parties because it's not a take one take from someone and give it to someone else it is more of that how do you really optimize the flow of containers in and out of the terminal but that product is now available kind of to to any of our uh, any of our customers uh, and um, yeah, and it is in the market now bill as ceo of dcli an intermodal chassis provider and chairman of bloom a supply chain technology company uh, you have a unique perspective on the intermodal space. How has it changed over the years? Where is it going post-COVID? And can you tell us about what role you think technology will play? If you think about it historically, um, 
ocean carriers originally owned or leased most of the marine chassis in, in, um, you know, that were operating. Uh, they either operated their own programs like uh, Marisco had BCLI that we eventually bought, or they operated in co-op pools like CCM in six locations, predominantly in the in the uh, southeast and, and central uh, southern uh, U.S. markets. At that time, you know, 2009 or so, uh, Maersk decided to exit the chassis business. So they created a concept called a trucker model, which rather than including a chassis in the cost of their uh, total transportation movement, um, they basically carved the chassis out uh, and uh, and build truckers or PCOs directly for the use of equipment. So they really changed their economic model uh, in 2009. Uh, other, you know, Maersk is a market leader. So other, uh, you know, uh, ocean carriers uh, focused on, well, maybe was selling the assets. So uh, roughly 300, well, including the, the Maersk units, uh, well over 350,000 uh, uh, marine ocean carrier-owned chassis were sold off to the leasing companies um, in between 2010 and, and, and 2020. And that, uh, that, that really changed, you know, the initiative. Um, we, we now are much more focused on, uh, as Brittany said earlier, focused on asset utilization and improvements uh, in asset utilization through street turns and, and better logistic capability. Uh, we're also uh, really focused in on improving, you know, the utiliza uh, utilization of the assets by, by making major investments on tire uh, uh, conversions to radials, et cetera. Uh, but the, the key, which we, I think we mentioned a little bit earlier, is how do we take a, a tech platform, right, and create better asset utilization through tying in forecasting, getting visibility of, of the shipments in transit. Uh, and then once a, an asset is delivered, reutilizing that asset rather than a one-way movement, creating a dual transaction uh, that uh, in, increases both truck productivity as well as asset productivity. Um, this is one of the big areas that uh, Rebecca Dye has been focusing on uh, in her review of the ports of Los Angeles and, and Long Beach. And she came out with a fact finding 29 uh, that you know, addressed four key points. One was, as Preventer mentioned earlier, the, the empty return of um, containers uh, versus uh, making those containers available to uh, the ag community uh, for export loads. So she's focused in on getting greater asset supply for uh, for the uh, export shippers. Second, and probably the most important, is dual transactions. Um, right now, in the port of Los Angeles, 51% of containers, import containers that come into one terminal, return to a different terminal. This creates $30 million of operating costs for repositioning, right? And, and frankly, a trucker, is going to move a load prior to moving an empty, empty uh, container, empty chassis, right? So that's why dwell times have been extended, et cetera. Uh, and then she focused really in on better coordination of, of uh, appointments, better coordination on, on hours of service at terminals, et cetera. So you know, all of this is really technology driven. For a shipper, the, the number one 
thing which is important is predictability. And predictability kind of and reliability is kind of where visibility plays a role in, right? And I think if you, and applies to both sides, right? Whether it's on the marine side of it, uh, some of our customers are back to, um, um, can't name the customer, but they're back to, it used to take me 14 days to get from Japan to uh, LA, and now it's taking me 60, right? Kind of, which makes kind of my whole supply chain uh, changes. Because it's just so unpredictable to, to to begin with, right? So, so one of the focus has been that how do you make it predictable service? The same thing applies on the rail intermodal. Uh, it's not necessary kind of that um, is rail intermodal so slower than truckload, but is it predictable or not? Uh, so that from from a shipper perspective, if you know that it's going to take seven days to go from point A to point B, you can design your supply chain around it. If you say that it's going to be between five days to fourteen days it becomes impossible for me to design my supply chain around those, those notions, right? So everything else eventually on visibility, on, on, uh, on kind of availability of assets, everything else goes back down to that, how predictable is it? And how accurate are those predictions that I can run my supply chain, supply chain around and build kind of the examples you're taking, uh, all of those kind of uh, create uncertainty and when things are uncertain, kind of people look for alternatives, right? Kind of they need always a backup plan and always kind of something else. Uh, so sea air combinations, kind of they came out of this whole whole notion uh, over uh, over the year, kind of uh, too. Uh, the domestic rail, kind of the issue continues to be that kind of if it is predictable, people will be okay to design their uh, supply chains around it. If it is uncertain, that's kind of where where, where as a shipper, I will be kind of worried about it. What does it really mean? Because that, that moment of truth, which is when a consumer or a business comes in to buy my product, and if it's not there, then I lose my revenue. Right? So, so that's kind of what drives everything. Right? Now, I can't do it at a cost which is too high and don't make any, any margin on that. So that's a given. But it's all around that certainty to, uh, uh, that, that we aspire for. And all the technology that we are working on is helping kind of these uncertain things more certain. There always will be uncertainty, but are you being transparent? Are you being uh, predictable? As soon as we know there's an issue, kind of do, do we tell the shipper? Uh, those are the type of things uh, that, that the supply chain officers uh, are, are looking for uh, who, are, who are our customers. Sustainability is more than a buzzword these days. It's, it seems to be the focus of many companies. How important is uh, supply chain uh, sustainability and how specifically how are uh, Bloom solutions helping uh, intermodal users reduce that all-important carbon footprint? You have to be able to minimize your carbon footprint. And so what we help kind of is that how do you go optimize your supply chains the worldwide spend on transportation today is somewhere between 15 to 17 trillion dollar we think there is at least a trillion dollar of waste in it waste is kind of you have an empty container empty repositioning and so it's a big number but when you look at the global scale right and i think our, our internal stated goal is that we are working towards how do you help eliminate that that waste that waste has an equal carbon footprint association with it and it, it stems from that there are so many players which are out there, right? Every, everyone looks at kind of their own silo. And when you're looking at the silo, you think you're being as optimal as you can be. But when you look at the whole, that how many empty miles are there, how much empty 
movements are there, how long are the delays. It's a, it's a big number. It's not a small number. So that's kind of what our focus is. And back in 18, actually, we had um, Boston Consulting Group come in just to look at the U.S. model and the data we had. How many, how much, how many speed turns are possible, right? How do you optimize the asset? It was a big number just for U.S. on the uh, on on kind of what the empty mile reduction could be. So our first focus is that you have to optimize it, and then you can offset it. So what that means is that for our customers, we're making it easier for them to see their carbon footprint usage. Right? So if I go pick a particular sailing on ocean versus another, there may be a different carbon footprint number. Right? If I look at kind of what, what I'm using kind of as a mode of transportation, there's a different carbon footprint number. And from technology perspective, we're making it that you can actually make your choices of what do you use where you can make a trade-off between how much does it cost me, how long does it take me, and how much carbon footprint am I using. Okay? And if you can do those, your carbon footprint usage and other things, it's, it's not just carbon footprint, but there are other environmental aspects as well that you account for in making those decisions. So as a platform, we are helping kind of that, how do you go optimize and lower your kind of, I won't say that you get, get to the lowest point because sometimes you have to use air as a mode because your timing is such that kind of, uh, even if ocean was available or rail was available, you may have to use LTL or truck. Uh, so, so, but we optimize it. Just as an aside, as a company for Bloom Global, we will be carbon footprint neutral by end of this year. So for all of our employees, right, what we have been looking at, that it's not only about usage of transportation. For Bloom, kind of, uh, we started this uh, uh, kind of last year. We have calculated for each one of our employees as they do the work, and there are companies which help you do it, uh, Bill. So we used it. How much is it? Once we know that what it is, then we are looking at it. How do we offset it? And you, you know, offsetting typically means that you have to figure out whether you plant more trees in some places or others. Uh, but as a company, kind of for Bloom Global, we are very focused on the environment. We are very focused on that we ourselves are not going to make sure that we are carbon fit, uh, footprint neutral, kind of from employee uh, perspective and what, what Bloom does. And for our customer, it is that how do I go and make sure that at least they know their carbon footprint and we give them options on how do you minimize that. And once you have minimized it, Bill, I think the answer still is you will have to offset it because no matter what we do in logistics, if you want to be carbon footprint neutral, there's no way to get to zero today. Hopefully, with technology, someday we can get there. But today, it is that you will use some. Can you be aware of it and can you minimize it? And then you go from there to say that, how do you, how do you make it neutral? So, Bill, there's an issue that came up just within the past few days. The uh, International Trade Commission issued a, a ruling uh, having to do with the Chinese government support of uh, Chinese uh, chassis manufacturers. What are the implications there? If you think about over the last 20 years, the uh, chassis, both domestic uh, 53-foot chassis and marine chassis supporting U.S. operations, uh, about 80-plus percent of that market had shifted to China uh, in the late 90s. Um, And a number of U.S. manufacturers have been very vocal uh, that they felt that uh, the Chinese government was subsidizing uh, Chinese manufacturers, um, you know, on their chassis bills, and that made it anti-competitive. Uh, the U.S. International Trade Commission ruled that uh, China was found was found that uh, the Chinese government was subsidizing, uh, 
Uh, so a 39.4 percent, um, you know, uh, uh, penalty will be uh, applied for countervailing duties. In addition, um, earlier this year, the Department of Commerce came up with a preliminary report that said that uh, uh, that the Chinese manufacturers were were um, selling product below cost and and uh, therefore you know dumping uh, uh, chassis in the U.S. And they issued in the preliminary report 188% penalty. Uh, and uh, that will be finalized May 6th. Uh, so if, and then on top of that, you have the 25% uh, tariff. So if you take a $10,000 marine chassis, if you add all of these uh, penalties and duties uh, and tariffs, uh, it would take it from 10,000 to mid to high $30,000 per chassis. And, uh, and that will effectively um, mean that the Chinese uh, will not be able to manufacture uh, chassis com competitively with those kinds of, of duties. Uh, and that puts the burden on US manufacturers. Uh, I said earlier, I worked with Stoughton Trailers. We were a large chassis builder. Um, US manufacturers um, are in a ramp up period. Uh, we believe that uh, you know they they'll ramp up ultimately to thirty thousand units plus, uh, but it's going to take them time. So chassis deliveries now are and production schedules are extended all the way out into first quarter and second quarter of twenty twenty two. DCLI um, got uh, we we got ahead of the curve and ordered uh, over ten thousand chassis um, you know that will be delivered this year. Uh, to support our both our domestic customers and, and our marine customers, um, but this this will create some tightness in the market. Um, and if the overall demand continues at current levels, which we believe it will, because of uh, still a slow return to the service sector, um, you know, side of the house, and and uh, and also the additional stimulus. So we think demand is going to be strong. Um, there will be a, this will uh, create a tightness for chassis, uh, both on the domestic and the marine side through the end of the year. Well, I'd like to thank uh, Pravinder Yohar and uh, Bill Shea for joining us. And I also wanted to, uh, I neglected to mention at the beginning of this that uh, uh, Heather Irvin, in addition to being editor-in-chief of Marine Log, is Railway Ages Intermodal and Ports Editor. And this is something new for us. Thank you, Bill, so much for letting me be a part of this, and also Bill Shea and Pravender. I think we've learned a lot, and I'm really excited to kind of bring some of this, these intermodal touches to, um, to my publication, to Marine Blog.